Welcome to a special podcast replay of the Hedgeye Investing Summit, originally aired on Hedgeye TV from March 19th through the 25th, 2019. We gathered some of the sharpest minds in investing to discuss the most important market trends and their implications. If you enjoy this segment, we encourage you to check out the others. Also, if you're new to Hedgeye, you qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Keith McCullough, and welcome to the Hedgeye Investing Summit. This is going to be a dandy. We have a lot uh, in store here. For the next three days, we're going to go back to back to back with uh, different people that are competent in their realm, that have been accurate. You know, Again, people that have a process that you're certainly going to be able to, to learn from. And again, as we get away from that old wall and we start to build our own process and again, be held accountable to that process and the views embedded in that process, I think that you'll find that the people that we have are the right people to be listening to. So uh, without further ado, one of the top guys that I know out there and have known for a long time, I've been fortunate enough uh, to have known Daniel Lacaye for uh, quite some time. Uh, he's always one of the best choices if you want to lead off a global macro discussion and you want somebody to be able to knock down the pins one by one from China to Europe to the U.S. and back again. Uh, Daniel, thank you very much for, st- uh, for spending some time with us uh, in the first slot. I very much appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's an absolute pleasure, as always, uh, to be in such fantastic companion and, uh, you know, a true honor. Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a good day to, to, to not be a macro tourist, my man. So uh, there are a lot of people out there that have a lot of opinions that are more uh, touristy in nature. And what we mean by that, for those of you that don't know, are people that don't have a model, don't have a process, and they just have views on what is happening in places like China and Europe. Uh, but uh, Daniel's not that guy. He's, uh, of course, the chief economist at Tresses, and he's written extensively on these matters. And, and again, he writes daily if you don't follow him on Twitter you absolutely should. Uh, but maybe if you just take a step back, because what I'm going to try to do in the next three days, Daniel, is capture um, the cyclical component, like where are we in the cycle, uh, which is the most important thing, uh, as you know, f- from my perspective, in rate of change terms, where are we in the cycle? And then wrap around that with the long-term views, which you've done as much work as anybody that I know, those longer-term uh, secular issues, because if we uh, indeed know where the cycle is, we can see where those longer-term issues may or may not matter as much to markets. So maybe if you, you take maybe the global cycle first, and then we'll jump into different countries. Certainly. Uh, the global cycle is in the face uh, of what I have called a number of times debt saturation. So what we are seeing is a, is a prolonged recovery, but that recovery, uh, what it leads is to much, much lower growth than what we're used to. And certainly what we're now is in the face of slowdown. We're in the face of slowdown because after uh, years and years of stimuli, what we're seeing right now is that the evidence of lower uh, productivity, uh, higher debt, and the challenges of the demand side policies that have been implemented and the failure of many of them are driving lower levels of growth. And I think it's pretty evident in those economies that have relied the most on uh, monetary policies compared to, for example, fiscal uh, policy. So it's quite evident in China and very, very evident as well in, in the European Union. 
Now, if you take, uh, let's take the big one that everyone, uh, in particular the tourists, like to talk about, which is China and this wonderfully beautiful, very good deal. Uh, however, we can describe it with more adjectives, uh, of course. But again, uh, is, Ch- is, is the Chinese slowdown having everything to do with trade wars or not? It has nothing to do with trade wars. If you look at uh, the downgrades of consensus, consensus estimates, the downgrades in industrial production, in uh, gross capital formation, uh, the the constant devaluation of the yuan that we have seen at least uh, uh, in in the last three years, all of those things, and obviously capital capital controls implemented by by the government, all of those things point to the reality of a slowdown that has absolutely nothing to do with trade wars and a lot to do with the concept that we mentioned before: debt saturation, excess capacity, uh, a lot of malinvestment directed by government policies and regional government policies. Uh, so it is it is simply. Uh, the realization that all of those uh, different projects that have been implemented virtually actually since 2008, all those big stimulus plans have uh, driven the economy to be less dynamic, not more. And uh, and the, the trade war is simply, I would say, an excuse to justify this, this, uh, the evidence of this weakening of both internal but also external demand. Remember that except for the United States and a couple of other countries, the China now is a, a, a trade deficit country. Mm-hmm. It's amazing to watch the external demand component. Like some of these data points, even exports, which uh, had been a longstanding growth story for the Chinese, you know, down 20% on a year-over-year basis. Some of these numbers, Daniel, I, I wake up in the morning um, after you do because you're in a different part of the world. But I, I am jo- my jaw drops sometimes when I see some of these numbers. As you know, the Chinese make up half their numbers, and they still are putting up, even if they're made-up numbers, horrendous numbers in rate of change space. Absolutely. And I think that that is the critical part, is the rate of change. The China bulls will always adhere to the idea that, uh, well, the growth is still phenomenal, Mm. but it's only on GDP basis. If you look at, and obviously we know how the GDP can be uh, played with, uh, particularly when the economy is controlled by one single entity, the the Chinese uh, Communist Party. But uh, if if you forget GDP... And if you look at industrial production, if you look at exports, exports are a very important driver here because it is uh, they are also showing that the the economy and particularly the capacity of the economy to be more competitive is actually weakening quite rapidly. Uh, and and I think that the 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 model change that was used many times by some of the China bulls as an excuse for it, we are going from the old economy to the new economy, has actually, it is a complete farce in in terms of of an excuse, because the reality is that the Chinese government continues to defend, and very much so, the old, uh, the alleged old economy. The state-owned enterprises have been the main drivers of increase of debt. Uh, if you look at the Hansen, uh, you can see that the, 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 the earnings of the company show that the vast majority of the companies generate returns well below the cost of capital. Private indebtedness is, is, is uh, growing inventories. 
We also another another figure that you talk a lot about. Uh, those show that the economy is not as robust as the government would like us to believe. Mm. Obviously, think about it. That you know, just sorry uh, to, to interrupt. You would not have a robust economy and the need to implement stimulus after stimulus, devaluations, and implement capital controls. Obviously, <laughs> yeah, obviously. Now, this chart, uh, which I think you're probably familiar with, uh, slide 118, guys, in the macro deck currently, we're showing like what actually brought China to look like they were accelerating on a fundamental basis. I mean, it absolutely did. If you go back to the Chinese uh, stimulus within the Shanghai Accord uh, coming out of the 2015 slowdown, you know, what you yeah. see here is secondary industries in China, which, again, this is the, you know, the old China, the heavy industries, empty cities. They're not all, obviously all empty at this juncture, uh, but they're certainly, they certainly aren't full. Uh, but, again, these types of industries had a massive ramp coming in, and that's the blue line in this chart, where in the middle of 2016, the Chinese stimulated like mad into easing base effects. Now, the base effects, uh, Daniel, are at their steepest point. The data is at its weakest point against those steep base effects. I get a lot of questions about this chart because some people think, me included, like the, the worst of the slowdown may be in the next couple months because that's just the toughest comparison. What do you think about that as we go into the back half of the year? Uh, the Chinese stock market is trying to signal, even if they're not uh, doing it themselves, the communists themselves aren't centrally planning it up into the close every day. I have my doubts about that. Um, but, but again, what, are you, what side of this do you sit on? Do you think that the worst of the Chinese slowdown, which is now two years in, by the way, in rate of change yeah. terms, uh, is, is behind us or, or we're about to enter a much bigger um, a, you know, secular and structural problem with long-term growth? Yes, the, I, I, I believe that the worst is actually in front of us. Really? And it is, wow. We will, we will probably see a small bounce, a technical bounce. You know this very well, that after the uh, Chinese New Year ends and then some of the restocking and inventory uh, playing around uh, is, is moved here and there, uh, you, you, you see a small bounce and everybody talks about uh, the, the trend changing. And then comes June to August. Huh? Those are the months to fear. In Chinese terms, huh? because because that's when things uh, are likely to to turn sour. Uh, remember that what, the reason why the stock market in China is rising so dramatically is first because of this this magic belief on the on the trade deal that is going to solve everything and change the trend. Uh, we have discussed this numerous times. The trade deal is going to be, uh, yes, it will happen, but it will be about things that are on the margin. And more importantly, it will probably mean that China will import more of some products from the United States. However, uh, that will be a zero-sum effect that will definitely reduce imports from other countries, particularly emerging economies. So what it does not mean, and it will definitely not mean, is a big change in the trend of growth. So I do think that we are likely to see the worst in front of us, the reason being that the Chinese government made a huge effort into the end of the year to uh, pump up the figures. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, there were massive liquidity injections uh, at the end of December, beginning of January. Those liquidity injections have probably transferred into higher credit. Well, not probably credit growth is a double digit uh, in January. Uh, so we will likely see those components of GDP that are uh, pumped up by debt 
play a little bit in the favor of the data at this uh, in the second in 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 March, maybe April, but then it fades away. If you're right on that, I mean, that's got to be one of the biggest uh, biggest calls to make from here. Uh, most people that I meet with, and you meet with them too, institutional investors, are constantly looking for what could go bullish. And, and they're yeah. constantly looking at the place that was bearish. Now, uh, having been a China bear for a year and a half now, I don't have that concern. I do, I do concern myself with missing major market moves, uh, which I'm currently you know, missing one in the Shanghai Composite Exchange. But I have other things to do with my life. I mean, especially if you're right in the next three to, you know, next three to six months, the way I'm going to deal with it is I'm going to wait and watch. Because if, this, yeah. if, if you are even remotely right, this thing is going to collapse on itself again, and there's really nothing that they can do, incrementally speaking, relative to what they've already done. So that, to me, that's that, let's just let's just check that um, you know as topic one. I want to spend ten minutes or less on that, and do let's go right to the wood on Europe, like the European yep. slowdown. Again, Europe. I've been bearish on Europe for a year and a half. No, I've not been buying stocks because they're cheap on the wrong numbers. Now, again, I'm in the same spot. I got European equities rallying. I got headlines from the ECB today, or somebody sniffing around saying that they're going to buy stocks. Um, you know, the European slowdown. Can you give me the economic view first, and then we'll talk about the market transmission mechanism that's currently or not underway? Yeah. Well, the reason for the for the eurozone slowdown is is reality versus magic. <laughs> you know, you can't expect. This is we we have been very very. Uh, it's been very frustrating to deal with with European bulls that felt that the economy was going to grow two point three two point four percent in an aging population, massive government spending, huge tax which economy. This is not going to happen. And I remember discussing this at the ECB and telling them that I was extremely worried about the fact that eighty percent of gross capital formation was actually a recycling of capital and that therefore you could not ex- expect productivity growth, improvement in the underlying economy and uh, real wages fundamentally getting stronger. No, uh, They didn't even know that and they didn't even knew how to how to deal with that, with that figure. Uh, the point about the Eurozone is not dissimilar to that of Japan in the 19, in the end of the 80s. Uh, what happened uh, what happened with the eurozone is that it disguised its structural problems with liquidity and that generated a placebo effect of course it did uh, because one of the big drivers of its uh, of the crisis was the fundamental belief in the risk of the euro collapsing so once you got that out of the picture that definitely created inflation in financial assets and you have today negative uh, yield in bonds in almost all of the economies in the in the eurozone uh, and massive inflation in sovereign bonds, but that has not transferred the 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 the, the chain of uh, of of transfer of monetary policy has not gone to the real economy, as the ECB, as the central planners expected. Hold on, it has obviously generated a transmission into the real economy, but definitely not the way that central planners expected. Uh, and and the reason for it is being that the vast majority of the liquidity has gone to uh, defend uh, current spending from governments that are uh, massively increasing imbalances. No, so the 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 issue of the eurozone is very simple. The eurozone is missing the technology revolution completely. 
You look at the United States, you look at China, you have the, the largest technological companies all over the world, yet in the Eurozone, you only have about 4% of the stock 600 is, uh, is in technology, and it's very questionable to call technology some of those <laughs> companies. Yeah, it's true. I'm sorry. You sometimes you you sometimes you need to put some some companies in 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 sectors that they don't belong to, no, in order to at least make them seem uh, uh, relevant. So while whilst in the whilst in the United States you have in in the S and P 500 around 25 percent, I believe it's now in technology in uh, in the in the stock 600. As I said, you have about four percent, and 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 many of them are not even technology. So the the euro the eurozone is missing the technology revolution it's not addressing the issues of productivity because it continues to subsidize the uh, obsolete sectors and uh, penalize particularly through a very aggressive fiscal uh, wedges in the the sectors of high productivity and on top of it, you have the, uh, the the problem of demographics that you and I talk about all the time and that the central banks always ignore. And finally, with it, the, the problem of, of uh, a high debt uh, because of uh, also very, very high government spending. Hmm. It's a, the, the long-term case for me is very easy to understand, if only because... Uh, I listen to you on this on this subject a lot, but you just can look at the numbers. I mean, the facts bear themselves out in spades, particularly the closer you get to demographics. Uh, but on the cyclical uh, point, this is I guess it's the same question as China, and it's really uh, you know, interconnected uh, to a large degree. Like Germany needs to stop slowing now. Uh, in my model. And um, you know, because they were slowing at this time last year in rate of change terms uh, on slide 39 of our macro deck for people that aren't familiar with quads one, two, three, and four, you know, we've really been in this in across Europe, Daniel, as you know, uh, with Italy being in a recession, obviously it goes from quad four and into quad three and then remains in quad four. That's how you get a recession. Uh, France is entering recession. But my model's like teasing me here, Daniel. It's like, yeah. uh, could we be coming out of an, or could we start to show an L shaped recovery, I think is how Darius would put it, uh, in Germany, and will that lift Italy out of its uh, current recession or not? And by the way, if, if it's going to happen, it's got to happen in the next one to two quarters as well. So it's almost the same question in terms of timing as China. Yeah, you you will likely see uh, a small bounce in the, in the, in, at the beginning of the second quarter, definitely. Uh, reason being that the uh, the components of both uh, government spending and the external sector being actually not that bad because yes exports are falling but hello imports are falling as well therefore <laughs> <laughs> therefore you get to that amazingly ridiculous position in which the data actually looks good because the countries are importing less uh, which actually uh, should be a driver of of higher growth in the future isn't it yeah so the point that that, I, that i'm trying to make is that you are you're absolutely right is that germany really needs to stop slowing down but germany is not going to finance another crazy bonanza of the peripheral countries that ultimately will end in a bigger crisis 
And the reason why it's not going to do it is because it is already doing it. And this is a, a, the critical part that nobody seems to want to understand, which is that it is not that Germany is underspending and saving too much. This is that Germany is actually spending uh, quite a bit more than what they need. And that is very evident in inventories. No? And that is very evident, for example, in some of these top industries, uh, uh, when, when you look at you know, uh, working capital build, etc. So there is no evidence that Germany is underspending, as, as we mentioned before, and there is certainly absolutely zero evidence that if they started to spend dramatically would cause uh, big improvements in the, in the economies. Think about this. If Germany doubled, doubled its imports from Greece, Spain, Italy and Portugal, uh, in the next year, the, the overall impact on GDP growth in the European Union would not be more than 0.1, 0.2%. That's terrible. So, and, that's not, and, and that is obviously not going to happen in an economy that is slowing down due to many factors, including, and we, we forgot before, is how aggressively uh, energy expenses have uh, increased in the Eurozone. Uh, the, 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 uh, the, the policy of the German government of getting rid of nuclear has been a disaster for the consumer. Uh, bills have more than doubled. That is a problem that is happening also in peripheral countries that went crazy with subsidies for renewables, etc. And, and we forget that the Eurozone is in the middle of another wave of these um, uh, green plans, no? So the uh, so what you will likely see is a is a technical bounce because uh, the data will be improved by actually things like believe it or not a massive increase in pension uh, spending from mm. governments yeah uh, more government with, spending more government spending exactly. and government and more cowbell I mean uh, more central planning cowbell for those of you that don't know what that is now you know that's when the central bank comes in and says wow look at Daniel Lacaille's forecast is accurate. Uh, the European slowdown is far worse than any economist in the ECB uh, would have thought. We need to do more. We need to give you more acronyms. We need to give you more instead of an acronym. Let's just call it cowbell. Um, and that's what it is. Do, do you think that that can, because you're just talking about a sequential bounce in data, which can happen a lot. That's not the new trend. Uh, it can be a big head fake, by the way, for markets, as you know. Um, but but what, what will this next round of ECB cowbell what, what is it actually going to do? Like, are we going to be back into the European economy reaccelerating in the back half of the year? No, it's very unlikely. It's very unlikely because credit growth in the eurozone is not bad. Credit growth is not uh, is not falling off a cliff like we are seeing, for example, in other economies. Um, so it's not a problem of liquidity, and it's definitely not a problem of rates. Right? Uh, you can get you can get a. <laughs> I don't want to say this to my friends in, in the United States that are watching us, but you can get a you can get a mortgage in, the, in any of the peripheral countries for 1.9% uh, uh, variable rate, uh, which is insane. Uh, so it's not a question of rates, and it's definitely not a question of liquidity. Banks are absolutely doing anything they can to lend. I was pre-given uh, uh, a loan recently. I, I suddenly received a call out of the blue from the bank. Uh, you have uh, you have 60,000 euros for whatever you want, no? Uh, they, they, they're desperate to lend. Whatever you they're want. They're desperate to lend. 
and um, so it's not a, so so the ECB's problem, which is not dissimilar to the problem of the PBOC and 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 the Fed, is to is the wrong diagnosis. Is that they believe that the reason why credit growth is 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 slow is low is because of liquidity and low rates, and that companies will uh, and investors and savers will spend more and 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 uh, borrow more uh, if rates remain low. That is not the reason. That is not the reason. Credit growth is okay. Yeah. It is just yeah. not okay compared to the Excel spreadsheet of the central planners. That's the only thing which is with which is not okay. Nothing, <laughs> nobody in there is no evidence of any company in the eurozone. Actually, rather the contrary. If you look at the at the earnings uh, uh, publications that we have seen in the in in, in this last month. Um, of of the eurozone spending less than what it needs, uh, so so again a problem of diagnosis uh, be, because uh, the problem continues to be productivity, continues to be overcapacity, uh, zero interest rates are zombifying the economy because if in any of the economies in the eurozone today you have a company that is not doing well you go to the bank with the keys of the uh, of the factory and say this is you know sorry things are not going well here are the keys the bank is going to do anything to refinance you mm-hmm. and that's the zombie companies are rising so dramatically the BIS uh, Bank of International Settlements actually showed how the, the 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 rise of zombie companies is so worrying because it makes the economy much less dynamic and uh, keeps over capacity but it's also that the misallocation of capital between zombie companies that kept being refinanced plus Current spending from governments that uh, incur in, in in deficits all the time uh, basically drive to this massive misallocation of capital that leads to obviously much lower growth, lower productivity, and lower levels of of, of credit growth. Mm-hmm. So we have a, the summary of all that is that we have slower for longer. We have the cycle that's rolled over. Everyone knows that now. Uh, just to recap, where and and maybe make a pivot here to the, tying it into the U.S. view. Uh, just wanted to, and again, uh, disagree if you disagree, uh, please. But again, uh, U.S. economy peaks in the third quarter, starts to roll over in the fourth quarter. The global economy had already been slowing. Europe had been slowing for a year, China for a year at that point. And here we are. Now we have the PBOC cowbell. We have the European Central Bank cowbell. We got the Fed going dovish twice, cowbell times two. Uh, and in this effervescent hope in the U.S. that the stock market's now actually going up again because... That was a one-off, Daniel. That the, the, the U.S. didn't really have a, you know, a, a classic, really uh, peak cycle top in, in equities or peak cycle top in profits or anything like that. I mean, there's differing views, especially because the stock market looks good on a two-month chart uh, in the U.S. Now, like where do you wash out on that? Where we are in the U.S. cycle uh, relative to what you've already laid out um, systematically here on, here on the global cycle? Yes, I think that the difference with the U.S. cycle. Is that uh, the is that the mechanism of transmission of monetary policy is is much 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 better, mm-hmm. and the reason for it is because I mean the cowbells are better, the cowbells are louder. They're yeah. like we have actually, a we actually have a miss. There's a we're going to get into the final four. I know you Spanish guys may not care about Mississippi State, but you know we got we got like all kinds of cowbell here in the U.S. This is uh, I could just imagine an Italian or a Spaniard talking about Mississippi State and ringing that thing. But yeah, we, yeah, we're definitely we got the cowbell thing down. I'm a Canadian, and I can even ring it here in, in the USA. 
what has got four eyes and cannot see no <laughs> um the yeah absolutely uh, th that is the only thing that is that is that is uh, keeping uh, the the economy stronger in the united states is the fact that uh, in wills whilst sorry whilst in uh, in the eurozone about 80% of the economy is uh, of the real economy is financed through the banking system in the united states it is about 20% and therefore it's a much more dynamic much more dynamic and therefore you have a a, a, a bigger a bigger process and better quicker process of of clean up of problems uh, but it's a relative game again. Huh? It's a relative game yeah. again. I, I'm relatively more bullish on the United States because all the data that we're receiving these these days, especially with uh, leading indicators, you have a combination. You have a combination of actually pretty bad one uh, with with some others that are actually not that bad. And the reason for it is because uh, the... The underlying trends are much different, are much more different than in in the eurozone and in and in China. Uh, why? Because the impact of government spending and the impact of government itself in the economy is much smaller. And uh, so I, I, you know, I'm, I, I don't think we will go, we are going to see a massive uh, improvement in the numbers. And definitely, I'm very aware of the risk that investors, like with China, have some sort of magic expectation about the trade deal. Um, but underlying, productivity growth is better, wage growth is better. Um, Capital expenditure is actually quite poor, but that is uh, that is not because uh, of anything else than the fact that companies do not need to spend more because the economy in the United States is much more regional, much less external, uh, externally dependent. And obviously, we uh, we talked about energy in the eurozone. Energy for the U.S. economy is very 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 important, and um, and the fact that it is now producing as much as uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, and that it's becoming almost uh, energy uh, independent, is 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 an integral factor of the difference between the United States, China, or the eurozone to me. Mm. That's, uh, that's an important observation, and it's, it's important to, to delineate between these, these economies because they are, are all very much different. And, and the expectation that uh, you're going to have this beautifully globally synchronized recovery uh, or what, whatever the old wall was calling it at the peak. Um, and by the way, that was true back then. It, it was just that they overstayed their welcome by about a year, um, and, which is not uncommon. Uh, so we're on the backside of, of slowing on the profit cycle here in the U.S., and we're going to get – actually, I already have one question in the queue on this – uh, which has to do with your views on high yield, you know, the U.S. debt markets, the profit cycle, et cetera. My view, I, I, think, I think you know this, I think that we're past peak on U.S. Uh, earnings from a rate of change perspective. Yeah. Uh, that yeah. was really peaking in the second and the third quarter of last year. And, and my, my greatest concern here is that what, what you should always be concerned about, which is the relationship, rate of change relationship between profits and high yield spreads or the high yield market with high yield being uh, as exposed as, as it's ever been. Uh, any thoughts on that and, and the timing of high yield as a problem? It was a huge problem, obviously, in the fourth quarter. High yield stopped trading, uh, which I would say is, yeah. a, a, even, even if Trump called it huge, I'd say it was not an exaggeration. Uh, but again, it was a major problem. And uh, I wonder what you think about that in the next two to three quarters as well. Yeah, I think that uh, uh, the you still have some... Uh 
tailwind on uh, fixed income and high yield as well in the emerging market uh, debt because of the U-turn in normalization policy from the central banks. Right. So financial repression is keeping uh, risk disguised and it will continue to do so because the the what the, the tailwind for high yield i believe comes from the unfortunate return and rise of the number uh, and the and the value of uh, of negative yield in bonds out there yep. so basically what is happening is that what central banks are doing is depleting low risk assets from the pool of opportunities for the most conservative investors and therefore they have to jump two three notches to get a little bit of return and um, and that is disguising risk uh, as the u-turn of um, of central banks has caught many of our of, of these investors uh, not participating in the market you will probably start to see, as we are seeing right now, actually, uh, uh, some of those that have seen markets rise in January didn't believe it, in February didn't believe it, in March they say, Boof, we need to find something to do, we need to do something. <laughs> you know? yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That is financial. That is textbook financial repression for you because everybody knows and that you with with clients me with many many people you've had this discussion is everybody sees the the, the data weakening and everybody knows the challenges of the of the global economy but they see markets rising and the reason why they see markets rising is because the fed the pboc the ecb everybody's done a u-turn yeah so uh, you will likely get still get a little bit of a you know uh, before it gets to the peak of the of the wave, but but it's a I, what I agree with you. It's a very very dangerous game here, because once this is what happens in the in the final leg of financial repression is that uh, massive injections of liquidity have a diminishing return, and especially in the length of the period. So the, the the market cycles become shorter. Yeah. And and that would be at least, you know, I think that investors need to be aware of the the digression between uh, real data, uh, the the earnings, the the macro cycle and uh, the, the the rate and liquidity cycle. Yeah, that's 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 as important as any point that you've made. Uh, our team can throw up slide 56, which shows uh, that we are indeed going to have the longest U.S. economic expansion in the history of the U.S., which is a long history. Uh, that's yeah. point number one. So anybody who is bearish, uh, Daniel, going back to, God forbid, 2012 or 2013, when the U.S. economy really accelerated in 2013, would know that there's nothing typical or average about an economic cycle being like 60 months or anything like that. Uh, the, yeah. the, the prior record was 118 months, and we could clean cut, get above that without a recession. Uh, but you can have multiple profit recessions in between. I guess the next slide is just to point out that the, what you just had at the all-time highs in August and September in the U.S. stock market was 10 straight quarters in a row of U.S. growth accelerating. That's obviously yeah. never happened before. What you have to do to have an acceleration is to come out of a slowdown, which has happened 100% of the time. And you had tax reform on the back end of that, which on slide 64, just to show you what it did to earnings, um, it, it gave you the, the highest level of U.S. earnings, corporate earnings in the history of, again, in the history of U.S. corporate earnings, which is a long history, and you got there uh, point to point at its fastest rate. So this, this, this gives a tremendous 
amount of risk to people that are long a chart like that, assuming that it's, yeah. it's earnings being the flow through to 10 quarters in a row uh, or it being this very long or the longest cycle ever, you know, where, where the risk is what you think it is, which is earnings come down. And that's the yeah. I don't know at what pace. I just know they're coming down. I completely agree. I completely agree. And it's evidence also in, in, in the trend of, for example, sales growth. Right. Uh, margin margins are not growing as as you would uh, you would think so. Obviously, we have discussed the that the the infamous call from so many investment banks that next year capex is going to rise dramatically never ends up happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously, if you have uh, it's going to be eight consecutive years of subdued capex growth. It obviously you know, earnings growth is not going to be the same. But I also think that there is another factor, is that last year we reached an all-time high in buybacks. And that was absolutely absolutely critical for the performance of the U.S. stocks. Um, If you see the guidance of U.S. companies in the earnings, I think, uh, obviously, the first, I would say, the bullish message into the beginning of the year was that the idea that so many predicated that buybacks would stop in 2019 is not happening. However, the amount of buybacks is a critical part uh, to your point yeah. that I think people are not taking into account. And I think it's slowing down quite significantly. Yeah. And, and the leverage taken on to buyback. I mean, it's obviously it's it's a political issue now. I personally have no with that view. But all, all we know is that it was additive to the earnings growth rate. Guys, if you throw upside 70, you can, um, Daniel knows this, obviously, but just so that everybody knows what we're talking about, the, the S&P 500 growth rate. So if you go to earnings growth rate, S&P 500 aggregate, uh, the three quarters we highlight in red is, are now the comparisons uh, to Daniel's yeah. point. Fully loaded with tax reform, epic buybacks. The share count obviously falls. The earnings per share rises. That's a new U.S. all-time record high of 24.5% earnings growth that now these companies have to cycle against. So um, that's, that's, that, that is the game of chicken that the equity market's playing here, Daniel. And, and I, I, I want to get to some questions, but you know, most of the questions will be surrounding what you've already written about. By the way, for those of you that don't know, uh, Daniel Akaya wrote this book right here. Uh, if you can't see it, so you can zoom in and please don't zoom in on my chubby face. Uh, you can look at you know, Escape from the Central Banking Trap. So you know, this guy knows what he's talking about when it comes to this. I know what your questions are. I can see them. You've already asked it 10 different ways. How can stocks just never go down again because we have so much cowbell? You know, and this is, um, <laughs> this is it's not a million-dollar question, and it's certainly not a billion. That's way too low, Daniel. There's a lot more money to be made on, on timing the answer to that right. Yeah, well, uh, this is the point. Um, financial repression is, is designed for this. It's designed <laughs> for you to believe that there is no risk and that you can only take more risk. This is it, it and that, that's the reason why Mr. Kuroda buys stocks. You know, he's not he's not stupid, of course. <laughs> the point is the following. What is what is your tolerance as an investor for an October, November, December like last year? Yeah. Because this this is the critical part is that is that aggressively low volatility and financial repression will create these types of drastic moves. And 
unless you have uh, an amount of capital and the ability to sustain these losses, etc., it is quite challenging uh, to to be aggressively placed in the highest part of the beta cycle. Yeah. You, so there, you, you, I absolutely agree with with many people that say, look, you have if you out of the market, you have a problem. Is that money is being taken out of your pocket while you sleep by by the central planners? So you need to be in the market, but you need to be very you need to be very uh, aware of the fact that you're living in an environment in which there is a financial repression game, and that financial repression. This is an important factor. It's not designed for central banks to make you easy money forever. It's for central banks to make governments borrowing cheap. So making governments borrowing cheap does not necessarily mean that stocks are going to rise forever. So you need to be you need to be you need to be aware of that. And think about this as well. And I've had this discussion, for example, with the European Central Bank. Uh, when you present the facts that uh, monetary policy is pumping up asset inflation, many of them, many of the members of, of those uh, central banks will tell you, hey, hold on, but the European market is not going up, you know, mm-hmm. because the key, the key factor is to keep borrowing low, but you're not going to buy Greek bonds and, uh, uh, or do so at, the, at your own, at your own risk. <laughs> do it with, actually, the way Wall Street guys do it is you do it with other people's money and then you say, ah, you know, we all got it wrong at the same time, but they got paid, it, yeah, paid along no, the nobody, way. Nobody expected it. No, yeah, nobody, nobody expected it except Keith and a couple of, and a couple <laughs> of crazy people. Well, um, I mean, what, what we've actually seen, and this isn't the first time, uh, certainly not my or your first rodeo, you know, the economy peaks in, in, in 1999, 2000, you have your first market event to the downside. Then you get an epic rally uh, from March to May of 2001 stocks. That's, I think the S&P was up 21%. Credit spreads come in. Everything's good. And then all of a sudden, you know, the proverbial poop hits the fan in all different ways for the next year and a half, uh, including yeah. credit spreads widening and staying wide. Uh, then in 08, you know, the economy slows. Fed comes in with cowbell. First reaction is buy stocks. Then by October, they're down on their knees begging for Buffett to come up with a new sales pitch. I mean, it is, it is what it is. You know, it's yeah. actually what you said, which is it's about the duration of the cycle and where you actually we've actually not been. Uh, and Darius Dale, on, uh, my uh, my partner on the yeah. macro team, says it's all the time. We've actually never legitimately been in the U.S. at the late, late cycle point from a labor perspective until right now. So you've had yep. mid-cycle slowdowns, you've had profit cycles going to recession, but you've not been at the classically like what you, I think you mean, and correct me if I'm wrong, but we're really when it comes to the lateness of the earnings cycle and the U.S. cycle in particular. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the point uh, for investors is you be very aware of high beta, beta bets. Right. Huh? Just, you know, uh, and follow the money. Follow the money. If you know that, and we all know that the macro data is uh, weak, that earnings and cash flows, balance sheets, buybacks, all those things look peaky. but then follow the money. You see the liquidity trends. You see the, uh, the, 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 what central banks are doing. Follow the liquidity trends. Follow the M2 growth in, uh, you know, in, in your screens, on your screen, sorry. And, uh, and try to avoid staying too long on that, on that cycle. But, yeah. but I think that that's, that's what we all have to do. And that's what we, what we have been sort of, uh, 
sort of forced to do, aren't we? Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, there's a, there are a lot of low beta bets that are making all-time highs. U.S. utilities, yeah. which I might be the only bull that, 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 that loves these things, but they make new all-time highs all the time. These are low beta bets. Uh, people would call them expensive. There's no hedge fund that's made their career along them. Uh, REITs, utilities, gold's working. There's plenty of things that don't have a lot of beta. Gold has a volatility of 10, for God's sakes. I mean, it's very low. Um, anyway, uh, I have a, just to get to the questions. Um, why are, like, and this is a, an important question. You've done a lot of work on this, if, if not some of the best work on this. You know, given everything that you just said, like on the cowbell and the financial repression, Daniel, why are we not seeing global hyperinflation given this amount of stimulus? Oh, it's very, very simple. You are seeing it. We've just mentioned it all throughout the, the conversation. We have massive hyperinflation in financial assets. That is <laughs> That's what, a great point. Know, that is it. Uh, financial inflation is created where the money goes. Inflation is not created by design. Inflation is created by the destruction of purchasing power of, 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 of currency. And the destruction of purchasing power of currency uh, is reflected in this case in financial assets. You have massive inflation in financial assets. And what you have is allegedly, allegedly low inflation, low CPI. Right. Uh, um, According to, and remember that Irving Fisher, great economist, created CPI uh, as an average of numerous uh, uh, prices precisely because he was so angry when he saw headlines every day in the paper saying bread is up 20 percent, sugar is up 10 percent. And he said, I don't want to see this anymore. Let's bundle them all together in a basket and it will say three. Yeah. And it's good. He's okay. a beauty. He's a beauty. He's a Yale guy. He wears a blue jacket like me. He, um, but and, and then all they have to do after old Irving created the CPI is that they had to change the basket every time components exactly. of the basket went up. That's the other point. But there is a reason, and this is what people need to understand. There is a reason why the, also why the economy is slowing down and discontent is rising. The man, the the all these demonstrations in France are happening because of the cost of living increase. Yeah. The cost of living increase is inflation. You, the French uh, government might tell every one of us that there is no inflation, but there are hundreds of thousands of people out there uh, on a monthly basis complaining about the rise in prices. Therefore, what we're doing is disguising the, the factors, uh, the, the fact the those prices that are not um, uh, that are rising too much with some of them that are not rising at all the technology in particular uh, the other factor is um, there cannot be the type of inflation even if we accept the way that CPI is calculated which I do even if we accept uh, what the way in which governments present inflation the reason why inflation does not rise to the levels that they expect is because the economy is not working the price formation of the economy is not working the way it used to the, because technology is disinflationary because perpetuating overcapacity is disinflationary and also because the high level of debt is disinflationary. So it's, it's, the, it's a liquidity trap, no? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's why you don't see that kind of inflation. Now, my dear friends in the United States, if you get one of those lunatics that defend uh, printing money to uh, finance a new Green Deal, you're going to know what real inflation is very quickly. Oh, yeah. Then, then like in 08, oil can go to $150 a barrel on WTI. I mean, okay. the, you, know, you, want it, you want to do that? You go for it. And then you're going to have both. You're going to have the... 
the, the highest yeah. hyperinflation in the history of asset prices on a very short-term basis, which, by the way, uh, we saw in a place called Germany uh, for a very short period of time. And what happened after that is not what people want to talk about. Uh, but, again, of course, nobody will be held accountable to anything like that, Daniel. So do not worry. All good. More cowbell. Um, no, uh, you, you, we will be, we will, we will be uh, blamed for the rise in inflation when it happens. The, they will call speculators because of the rise uh, uh, for the rise of oil prices, speculators for the rise of the rise in food prices. Of course, it's always been the same way since the assignats in France. Yep, no, I, I agree with that hundred uh, percent. Um, just a couple more questions here. Uh, this is a, a, just to turn the dial to a different topic. Uh, I have no idea on this, and I know you do. Uh, any thoughts on Paris, the, the yellow vest movement? Uh, why is this not being reported more often in the U.S. media? It is not being reported more in the U.S. media because uh, it is uh, it is a movement precisely uh, criticizing the rise in cost of living in a country that has the highest level of redistribution policies and the highest uh, intervention from government. So, uh, so. Reporting about, I mean, obviously, I imagine that they do report about it, but not as often maybe as as some would. But the reason why uh, so much of the mainstream media does not like to report about the Gigette Yom, the Yellow Vest uh, movement in France, is precisely because it is against uh, a government and uh, and a country uh, that uh, is. Uh, presented as the poster boy of redistribution of uh, 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 equality policies, etc., 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 and what it is, and what the movement is showing is that all those things uh, are actually not true. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's one good reason. I I I I I, I can't believe that the media would have any political bias. Uh, <laughs> certainly not the financial media here in the U.S. Um, Keith, can you ask Daniel what he thinks ahead of the Fed on Wednesday? Do you think the Fed will be dovish enough? Ah, very good question. I like I like the term enough mm-hmm. uh, because expectations are very very high. I just uh, tweeted a couple of minutes ago uh, some comments from uh, from an investment bank in the United States uh, expecting a very very dovish message from the from the Fed. Yep. Um, I think that the Fed will be dovish. Will keep. Uh, will obviously will downgrade growth expectations will downgrade inflation expectations, downgrade an inflation expectations with a strong uh, labor market, according to the figures that they follow, um, is going to give them the grounds to continue to be dovish in terms of policy and even hint at the possibility of not just not reducing the balance sheet of the, of the, of the Fed, but increasing it. The question is, and, and the key point of the question is, the, the word enough. And that's what worries me. I think that the market is too skewed to the uh, extremely beta bullish uh, view that that the Fed is going to enter into QE. And I don't think it'll happen this time. I don't think it's going to happen even this year at all. I think that if it does and it might, it, it will probably uh, wait uh, quite a bit more. Yeah, that's uh, that's a really important question for me personally too. I mean, we, I, most of the things that I own 
are going to have a bad day if the Fed isn't dovish enough. I mean, to be clear, <laughs> to, to be clear, everything that's worked for me in the last six months is because the Fed uh, growth slowed, inflation slowed, headline inflation, CPI inflation slowed, bond yields fell, and the Fed went dovish twice. I mean, that's the only yeah. reason why a Treasury bond bull like me would have gotten paid the, as much as we've been paid. So if they're not dovish enough, Interest rates yeah. are going to bounce aggressively, aggressively in, in today's day and age might be five basis points on the 10-year yield. But, but still, actually, that's actually how the market's not to get into what the market's doing today, uh, even though a lot of people care about what's happening today, including me. Uh, the, you know, the market's actually saying that today, Daniel. You, you, don't have, yeah. you, don't, you don't have REITs and utilities leading the market to the upside. You have everything else, which is yeah. probably that we got overbought at all-time highs on utilities and Treasury, Treasury bond yields have been down uh, 14 out of the last 19 weeks. I mean, that is yep. a ton in terms of the consecutiveness of lower for longer on bond yields. Swiss 10s are at, I think, minus 37 basis points. Um, yep. So actually, maybe that's the final question I could ask you here. Um, is that a catalyst for the stock market to go down, for the bond proxies to go down and bonds to go down? Um, uh, it depends. Huh? The, uh, let's let's put it this way: if the rhetoric of the Fed points to a problem of inflation, but not a problem of growth, and I believe that they might play around with the 2020 figures, keeping them, hmm? mm-hmm. then uh, you might continue. You might see this this trend that we have been talking about uh, for a little bit longer, for at least yep. a while longer. So remember that what the Fed is trying to do here is to avoid all of us thinking that the flattening of the yield curve is a sign of recession. Mm -hmm. What it wants us to see is that it is a sign of the Fed managing the curve. Okay, so the way to do it is to give bullish tone, uh, a a relatively bullish tone on 2020 uh, and the communication for 2020 growth to be modest about 2019 and definitely bearish about inflation. Uh, So I'm, you know, I don't know, but I think that uh, definitely the market is too, too, too aggressively skewed to the uh, the to the Fed announcing, uh, you know, uh, 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 a big, big, big uh, stimulus that that they that first they don't need to. Mm-hmm. And second, the only thing that they that they need is to do a little bit what Trump and Xi Jinping are doing with the trade deal, which is to hint that it is coming. Huh? So you know, bear with us. Huh? Yeah, that that's important. And um, you know, thanks for your honesty on that. There's a book that I was citing this morning. Uh, I called it Thinking in Quads, but uh, it was inspired by this book called Thinking in Bets, where uh, Annie Duke, who's a professional poker player, said the three words that, um, that, that, that certified experts or people who perceive to be experts don't use enough, not nearly enough, you just use them in a row. I don't know. All right? So <laughs> that, that is, it's, it's, it's a really humbling thing to say, but it's actually the only thing one should say some of the time, and in case most of the time. And and, yeah. and and I think that that's a really it's a great part about you. It's a great part about following you. I think that everyone is really um, you know, it, it's a great privilege to be able to follow you on Twitter. I mean, these people get it for free. Uh, and again, just to have the humility to say that you don't know the answer to every single question. I certainly don't either. That 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 that's a that's a it's a great way to 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 to, to end what's been a great discussion. And, and thanks for thanks for making the time to do it.
Always, uh, always a pleasure and uh, great to follow you as well. It's, uh, it's always a, a tremendous learning process. Thanks for listening to our podcast. As a reminder, new Hedgeye subscribers may qualify for a special discount on one of our Hedgeye investing products. Email customer service director Matt Moran at mmoran at hedgeye.com. That's M-M-O-R-A-N at hedgeye.com. Hedgeye Risk Management is a registered investment advisor registered with the state of Connecticut. Hedgeye Risk Management is not a broker-dealer and does not provide investment advice for individuals. This research does not constitute an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any security. This research is presented without regard to individual investment preferences or risk parameters. It is general information and does not constitute specific investment advice. Nothing presented herein should be construed as legal or tax advice. This presentation is based on information from sources believed to be reliable. Hedgeye Risk Management is not responsible for errors, inaccuracies, or omissions of information. The opinions and conclusions contained in this report are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of Hedgeye and are intended solely for the use of Hedgeye Risk Management's clients and subscribers. In reaching these opinions and conclusions, the individuals expressing those opinions and conclusions and their employees have relied upon research which is based upon sources considered credible and reliable within the industry. Neither Hedgeye Risk Management nor any individual expressing those opinions and conclusions are responsible for the validity or authenticity of the information upon which it has relied.